California about 15 or so years ago, um, asked and answered that question to my husband and a whole room full of church planters. Who does pastor the pastor? And, um, and so when I heard those answers, I was like, wait a minute, that's true from my heart, and I think it's probably true for all of our hearts. And so we're going to start there with um, that, um, who does pastor our hearts. And Pericleo, if you want to think about what Pericleo does, we take theological truths, things that we believe, and try to make them practical and visual and memorable in some way that, so it's accessible to your heart, um, especially in the moment of this, all the chaos and crisis that comes your way, but trying to help um, women, and tonight men, to be able to think through, what can I hold on to and grab hold of? What truth that's up here can I hold on to and grab, um, grab a hold of in the moment? Um, and so, one of the things, is it a little too up higher? Okay. This is where I need you, babes. Where are you in the back? Here. Higher. Higher. Is that better? Is that too far away? How's that? Is that better? Okay, great. Um, so the reason why this is so important is that you guys all know that you can, in a moment, be that um, person who remembers the truth of how loved you are, how delighted the Father is in you, and how much you have a place to stand. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And you can stand, and stand firm, um, like the beginning of Philippians 4. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that you also know is that in one moment, this. One comment, one, um, one email, and we can be what uh, Mark 2, think Mark 2, we can be on the mat. Like the lame man, spiritually, emotionally, or physically lame. That's us. Um, so my job today for us together in our time is to consider and celebrate with you guys a thousand ways that everyone in this room will be pastored, will be shepherded. Uh, so let's go back to Dick Kaufman. What did he say? Who pastors you? Uh, the answer he gave was threefold. Essentially, he said, the primary pastor for any person is themselves. It's you. You are your primary pastor because the voice that you hear the most is in your head, more than any Sunday sermon or any number of podcasts. Um, your wife or your husband or your children speaking to you, the voice you listen to the most is your own. And so that's a good thing to start thinking about. So if I am listening to myself, what am I speaking to myself? Is the, the, the primary message that comes from my own mind and my heart to myself, is that one of death and duty? Is it one of life and beauty? Or what would, you, what would you classify it as? Just take a moment and think right now. If you had to label that voice, what would it be? Um, just think about that for a sec. Um, I'll tell you that one of my primary ways of speaking to my heart for years as a Christian was one of death and duty. It wasn't truth or beauty. It was, um, I'll say it this way, it was, I had this way of talking to myself because I had a syndrome. I call it my A student syndrome. And before I was a Christian in high school, I got A's. And there's a lot of accolades that can come with that. But I didn't just get A's. I was that kid in class that needed the A plus. Does that make sense? And it, failing is a B, A minus. I mean, an A student syndrome, when it's really acute, when you need to be hospitalized for it, is <laughs> that kind where you need the 104% because you did all the extra credit. And I took that lens, that way of looking at getting my worth from what I accomplished, um, and I took that into my faith with Christ as an early Christian. And actually so much so that my friends labeled me, they gave me a different syndrome. They said, Tammy, you have Galatians 3.3 syndrome. I go, what's that? And they said, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, you would now attempt to attain your goal by human effort. And I'm like, yeah, that was me. So now you know a little bit of that A student <laughs> syndrome. That's how I spoke to my heart. And essentially, I would say it like this. It's like, God, you give me your word. Um, you told me how to follow you, to love you, to obey you, to love others. If I just applied myself, I'd get an A. And if I didn't, if I didn't get an A, it's because I didn't apply myself. And I know you're disappointed with me. You are that disapproving parent that, with a B. Even though my parents never disapproved, that's how I looked and viewed, at my, viewed my father. So tonight, before your very eyes, I'm going to do a little jujitsu kind of thing. I'm going to show you how I preach to my own heart. Because 
This A student syndrome, the Galatians 3, 3 syndrome, did not stop years ago when I identified it. Um, it's been haunting me this, ever since they asked me to do this conference. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> I, I don't want to do this. And I don't want to, yeah, well, long story short, you know. Um, so I'm gonna, here's, what, here's how speaking to my heart actually tends to start. Is okay, Tammy, let's think of the negative. Do you really want to attach your worth and value to how you deliver tonight? Do you really want to do that? Because if so, remember, you're on some shaky ground. It's like those heels that are <laughs> crazy high. My daughter's learning how to dance in high heels, and I'm like, oh, I couldn't hip-hop with high heels for anything. But I would be on shaky ground. Um, and so the truth and beauty that I'm going to hold on to my own heart right now is essentially, uh, it'll go like this. Um, think of this as my prayer. Jesus, you got the A. You got the A. And regardless of how the outcome of tonight, my GPA can't go down because you gave me a record. And if I could believe that and hold fast onto that, then I can be here for your glory and not mine. I don't need the A. Um, I have that. And actually, that gives me footing. And one of the number one ways that I I, um, remind myself of the gospel um, is this. I take off my shoes. It's because it helps me to remember, if any of you were Chick Flick fans, there's this old movie called Notting Hill with um, Hugh Grant and, what's her name? Julia Roberts, there you go. And at the, at the very end, some of you watch movies with your wives, if you're married. <laughs> so, okay, so, so in, at the end of the movie, somewhere at the, toward the end of the movie, she says to him, um, this, this guy who's not famous and she's famous, and she said, you know, that, that you know, fame and popularity thing isn't real. She says, I'm really just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love me. And so how I preach to my heart is, Tammy, you're really just a girl standing in front of your father knowing that he loves you. So that's where I take my shoes off. And um, yeah, that's how I speak to my heart when I'm in my right mind. It's not always um, true. <laughs> so um, Dick Coffin secondly said, the, um, the, number, the second way that you're pastored is through gospel friends. And the way he described gospel friends was that these aren't people that merely give you input, um, but those who invite you to consider what are you speaking to your heart? What, what are you saying to your heart? Um, and is it true? Is it in line with the truth of the gospel like Galatians 2 talks about? Um, gospel friends ask you, what might you need to repent of? What truth could you hold on to? How might the Father quiet you with his love right now? Um, third, he said, it's gospel mentors. And these are similar to gospel friends. The difference between gospel mentors up on, the, uh, on our, our shepherd's staff is that these people are a little bit more removed from everyday life. So they um, probably invite you toward um, finding your rest and your righteousness and identity in Christ. But they, they're probably not a part of your everyday life. They're coaches and counselors, perhaps other people that you listen to their sermons or authors or songwriters. And then at the end of this talk, I wasn't there, but I imagine Dick Kaufman did the spiritual kind of ta-dum thing where he said, actually, it's the Holy Spirit working in and through you and gospel friends and mentors. He's going he's gonna to pastor you and shepherd you all of your life. And so um, what I love about that is that um, it's, he is, he's going to use all of these means. And not only that, he has the entire earth at his disposal to care for you, to pastor and shepherd our hearts. Um, we, his shepherds, we are his herding sheep. And we are also wounding shepherds that, that crazily he still loves to care for. Jacob really got this right in the end of um, Genesis, where it's that time where he's getting ready to bless the boys before he dies, and he's got Joseph's sons, and he does the old switcherooning with his hands. But he says in 48, 18, 15, the God who has been my shepherd all my life unto this day. So he can look back at his rascal, deceitful life and say, God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. And whether you're that rascal, deceitful <laughs> person or um, the one trying to please God in everything that you do, the reality is he's your shepherd regardless. And he will pastor and shepherd you and mentor you and care for you all your life until this day. He is more committed and invested than any pastor, any coach, any mentor, any Titus II um, spiritual mother that you have, um, any counselor, 
He's committed and will do this all of your life. And his voice is always going to be the same. We know the shepherd says, I, they know my, my sheep know my voice, they hear me, or something like that. And um, the, basically, he's always inviting his, um, his sheep to hear his voice, to follow him, to repent, um, to trust him, to believe him, um, and to love. And that's gonna, he's going to, by his power of his spirit, that's going to happen more and more and more because of the work of the spirit in our lives. So my friends, let's look up. Um, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes into the hills. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord. And from Zion, we know our help has come. And so today in our struggles, our help just hasn't come, but will come with whatever it is that we're facing. Our help will come. Truth is his name. Beauty is his name. The good shepherd is his name. And Revelation 19, uh, there's a slide here. I like to think about this. Our shepherd king, he's a tatted superhero. <laughs> he's the superhero of superheroes. In Revelation 19, he says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. I think of like king of kings and lord of lords. That's the shepherd that we have. Who can thwart that? Um, what are bears to him? What are lions? What are parishioners? <laughs> What's your husband? What's your wife? Um, what, what are stormtroopers? My grandson, who's three, he loves to say, every time he sees a stormtrooper, he goes, bad guys, bad guys. Um, who can take us down? Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? On a side note, my husband likes to say, it's not just the shark that can get you with one bite, it's the hundred bites of the piranhas, all that little nipping. Um, and, um, and yet, and yet on our defender, on his robe and on his thigh is what? You guys read it with me. It's king of kings and lord of lords. We, don't mess with him. And he's, he's not going to let anybody mess with us. And when he does, he will bind up our wounds and care for us um, if we are alert and watching to see what he's doing. So friends, he'll find a thousand ways to pastor our hearts, to care for you, to rescue you. And it'll probably be some really cool like trailer music, like movie trailer music. I love in um, Last of the Mohicans, every time Cora gets rescued, the same music line comes through. And I'm like, that's, I want that in my soundtrack. <laughs> so um, I, it's a great one. Go back and watch that one. But he'll rescue us. Um, he'll carry us home. Even if you're the one that's wandering off. Remember like that runaway bunny? He'll come after you and he'll find you. And you'll be the one that he'll carry home on his nail-scarred shoulders with delight, not anger and ticked offness that he had to come after you. He knows your name. In fact, our names are written in his book. They're on his nail-scarred hands, so my friends, and look up. Um, and look around, because he's also providing a thousand different means, um, different people, and different ways to, um, to shepherd and pastor our hearts. So um, I always like to think about myself, Tammy, don't, I, let me say it this way. There's this woman, her name is Patsy Claremont, way back in the 80s or so, she wrote a book called God uses cracked pots, and I'm the visual aid. And so I thought that was really cute, but what I loved about this book was that she said that she had always been waiting for this older, wiser woman to walk into her life to mentor her. Um, and I didn't really have that much as a young believer, but then I married Steve, and so I'm like, Ephesians 5, he's gotta do this. Like, he's, he's responsible to make me holy and happy and mature. <laughs> At least that's what I thought. Um, but I think one of the things that, that we do is we put a lot of emphasis on an individual or a person or maybe the senior pastor when you move into a new place and you think that man's going to mentor me. Um, but friends, um, what Patsy Claremont says, she said, go through life with a basket. And every time you see fruit, when I see my friend Sharon, I shake her for everything she's worth. And I pull all that good fruit, um, whether that's Sharon or a song or a liturgy or something that you see in a movie, you take that home and you eat off of it. And, and the nourishment that God's provided for you because he will provide for you and care for you from all different kinds of places. Um, so from his word, from the truth that you're rehearsing to your heart, from gospel friends, from gospel mentors, from movies and music, etc., let's look up and look around to see how he's providing, how he's nurturing and caring for us. All right, so a big part of what Pericleo does, like, as I mentioned, we try to take theological truths and make them practical, visual, memorable, kind of like what could you take with you on your journey because a lot of stuff's going to come at you. Um, and so what we're going to do is a few little exercises together to kind of take this beautiful orthodoxy and move into um, a beautiful orthopraxy. So if you look on your handout, there's one that says voices and verdicts. And you guys are going to get to participate here for a minute. So think about right now, 
Many people throughout your life have spoken and you have listened. We've all listened. Um, some have spoken truth and beauty and others death and duty. Others um, have despised us um, or tried to define us or put us in a box. People have spoken story-shaping verdicts over us. Some of those are positive and some of them are negative. Um, I'll give you two examples. A negative one for me was, um, I had a sibling my whole young life always said, you have a huge ugly nose. And so I didn't like wake up every day in the mirror and say, Tammy, you have a huge ugly nose, but I didn't really like my nose. Um, but I didn't know how much it would shape my story until my daughter, Emily, my second child who had always had, had a really rough start with relationally, she finally wanted to do something with me. And she said, Mom, let's go downtown Columbus and get our noses pierced. And I'm like, sure, that sounds nice. <laughs> and then I get there, she, does, she goes first, and when the needle's about to come to my nose, I stop. Because why would I, get my, why would I draw attention to the big, ugly thing on my face? So that makes sense. I missed this great opportunity um, at that point with her. Um, I did never go back. I could have always gone back, but I didn't. Um, but here's a positive verdict, something that someone has said my whole young childhood that, that has um, also impacted me and shaped my story. And this was, um, oh, Tammy, you're so thoughtful. You always remember birthdays. You're so kind. You're so thoughtful. And usually that's, those are really nice, encouraging things to say, but those became like heavy reputation burdens that I bore that every time I forgot a birthday, every time um, I didn't send the thank you card, the accusation and the condemnation that I spoke to myself was horrendous um, because I wasn't living up to the very thing that I was supposed to be good at. Um, and I actually think that even today, I've stayed away from a lot of social media because I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be thoughtful one day with Cheryl and then forget Sharon's birthday or forget that Erwin, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, like the, the fear of that has actually kept me from enjoying um, Facebook, if you can say Facebook is worth enjoying. So, um, but that's okay. Um, so Steve gave me the permission to tell one of his, um, one of his voices was from a pastor or boss who, pastor boss who told him one day, Steve, you're unfit for ministry. Um, in the short run, that actually led us away from that church plant. But eventually, as only the Holy Spirit can do, when he says, takes what man meant for evil and uses it for good, that actually propelled us into church planting. <laughs> and interestingly enough, uh, we were like, this is perfect. Church planting is perfect for people who are unfit for ministry. <laughs> and, amen, amen. So... But that became the mantra, and it was a place where I could watch my husband run into the Father's arms over and over again, knowing God's grace would be sufficient for him, and God's grace would be, his power would be made perfect in my husband's weakness at that time. And I saw my husband boast in Christ, and that was beautiful. Um, so I want you to do is take a moment on your paper. You'll see, if you'll flip to the next chart, you'll see... Um, so what I want you to do is take one minute and write down at least one where, think about the left-hand side, who has spoken to you? Like, what is your name? Name the person that's spoken to you. And then the corresponding line in the green, what did they say? And then think about how it shaped your story. I'm gonna give you one minute, and when the alarm goes off, I'm gonna ring the bell, and I'm gonna ask you to turn to a neighbor. And you each have one minute um, to share just one of those, if you get more than one, um, but just share one, um, one who, sh who spoke, it could be a, a real person, it also could be social media or anything, um, and what did they say and how has it shaped you? So ready, go, got one minute to write. All right, so turn to a neighbor, and um, in one minute I'll ring the bell, and then you'll switch. So ready, go.
Okay, switch if you haven't yet. I'm hearing a quiet, so we're going to go ahead and keep moving on. Um, so let me ask you this. Many of you here are in full-time ministry. Could I have one, one gentleman and one gal um, stand up with a loud voice and just share with the group? Anybody willing to do that? Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for trusting us with that. Thank you. <laughs> Mike, are you taking credit for that? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> no. Um, so, um, a gal, anybody willing? <laughs> I made eye contact with you, Cheryl. That wasn't fair. Go ahead. Go ahead. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. And thanks for trust, donating your trust to your neighbor on that. I appreciate it. Okay, so humans, we were created to be identified and described. Adam in the garden, even before the illicit fruit tasting, said what? You are bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We saw the Father um, out loud in front of a crowd at the baptism say to Jesus, what? This is my son whom I love. Um, with him I am well pleased. And so it's not wrong to want to be identified or described as kind of how we've been created. But who do we go to that and give that life-shaping authority to? Um, that's where we tend to get tripped up. Because I think we all know in our heads that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he loves us. We're precious to him. We're his treasured possession. Um, yet in a moment, that truth is, like leaks out. I call myself a gospel sieve. It kind of was like, that's gone. But what my mom might say about me from third grade stays on high definition and surround sound. While what the truth of God's word, even though you may preach it every week and you speak it to your heart on a regular basis, it leaks out pretty quickly. Um, many of the comments that have been made to us in our past and even today have become gavel down verdicts. And that's why we need to go to court. We need to go to the court where God is the judge. Paul wrote in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, um, this truth. I care very little if I'm judged by you or anyone else, um, or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that's not what makes me innocent. It's God who judges me. Before his death, Paul would actually need to hold fast to these very truths. He was going to be in real courtrooms eventually with Festus and Agrippa and those other guys may, may have gotten that wrong. But um, he was used to being in courtrooms. And the reality is, I love how Paul says, You've got to run to God's courtroom, regardless of how you think about yourself or what other people say. So paraphrasing him, I like to think about this is how I say to myself, Tammy, um, this is what Paul would say. I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. It's what God thinks about me. And with God as my judge and because of that substituting Savior, um, Jesus, my big brother, who got the verdict that I deserved um, that, so I could get the verdict he deserved. Many of you guys have heard that, but I had to make it practical and visual and memorable. I had to go literally and say, I'm getting a gavel. I'm going to remind myself, put it on my desk, that the court is adjourned. I don't need to go in that, into other people's courtrooms to get a verdict about myself, that one that has already been spoken and is already completely um, 
um, finished, um, the verdict that I have is completely um, mine forever, and it's yours forever. So um, Erwin, I've been asked Erwin to come up. We're gonna kind of make this a little more personal. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to be, Erwin, how about you stand right there and you face me. You yeah. face me. That'll be, that'll be God the judge. This is the courtroom we okay, all want to be in. in. <laughs> so I'm, we're in God's, God's courtroom. The God's the, the judge. judge. You're the defendant. You're oh, on trial. Just, okay. And I'm not Jesus, but I'm gonna be. I'm gonna play the role of Jesus right now. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be your big brother. Okay. <laughs> and because the beautiful thing in God's courtroom, that when Jesus stands before you in this courtroom, he can look back at the gallery and say, "In this courtroom, you may not speak against Irwin here." Amen. And Irwin, you may not speak against you here. I died for you. Yes. Thank you. So, thank you. He didn't know what he was getting into. I, so, I was going to say, when I turned to the audience, I was going to say, you guys all have something against Erwin I know, and it's because he loves the Yankees that, that he's in court. Um, but God's courtroom, friends, it's the only safe place to be. Um, it's the safe courtroom. There's no impartial judges, no rigged systems, no favoritism, but there's favor. Think about Psalm 5. You surround me with your favor as with a shield. Um, that's one of my favorite truths to hold on to. I am surrounded by his favor. But again, like we said, we're leaky. Um, so let's go to some of the other courtrooms. I never wake up every morning saying, I don't want to believe the gospel today. Um, <laughs> but this is where I usually wake up, and it's not God's courtroom. It's the courtroom of public opinion, where if we take that same paraphrase, it's like, yeah, I don't care what I think about me, um, and I, I know what God thinks, but it's kind of like muffled down here. I really care what you think about me. I care what the church thinks about me. I care what my coworkers think about me. Um, the courtroom of public opinion, I've lived many of my years, and um, then another one, you might not be familiar with that one, but you might like this one. This is the courtroom of self-opinion. Yeah, yeah, I know what God says about me, um, but I don't really care about that, and I don't care what you think about me. As long as I'm okay with me, the hell with you all, kind of. Do you got that? You know, just kind of like, I don't care. And so you might have in one household or on one staff, you might have somebody who lives in the courtroom of public opinion and someone who lives in the courtroom of self-opinion. And that's part of the reason why we have all this stuff, chaos and <laughs> conflict. But the invitation is always for each one to run into the courtroom of God's, um, God's courtroom. Here's another one. Steve and I lived in this one for quite a few years. Um, I think about this one is, is um, don't really care what God thinks about me. I mean, I care about it, but it's not loud and it's not ruling me. And I don't really care what other people think. As long as you and I are okay, honey, as long as we agree, then we're right, they're wrong. We, we can judge and we can, does it make sense? We're okay. You can do that with a friend. Um, we can do it with one staff member um, pulling away, with another, away from another staff member. This is what Brene Brown calls, in some ways, common enemy intimacy this sweet intimacy, as long as you and I are okay and we can judge together, we cannot care what anybody else thinks. And at the same time, we're also not caring what God thinks. So these are the places that we tend to run into. Um, Steve and I got, we would get like Oscars, like the best supporting role. We were so, so supportive of each other. But, <laughs> but we, this is how we supported each other. Um, that boss that told you that, he's so bad, he's so bad, he's so bad. So we would, we would point fingers at other people um, putting them down to elevate us to make us feel good about ourselves. We rarely ever, in those early years, never pointed each other to Christ, never invited each other toward repentance or running into God's courtroom to remember what he said about us, regardless of what other people thought. Um, and so that's been a beautiful change. We, um, in Pericleia, we re-ring this. It's called the redemption bell. And we do that all the time. And we are like, okay, if we wait to the end of the story, this is my visual for being in the now and the not yet. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If we wait till the end of the story, um, when we really are perfect and completely redeemed to celebrate, it's going to be a long time, and it's also going to be a lot of joy, um, and a lot of joylessness, and a lot of missed things to celebrate. When, when you live differently than you did last week or this morning, the fact that I'm standing here and enjoying this, I'm ringing the bell inside. <sighs> so, because I know I'm being helped, um, and... Um, I appreciate it. And there's one other thing I want to say about courtrooms. I've been thinking about this, and I had to find some new kind of way to remember this. Um, I, like I said, I don't wake up saying, I'm going to go in these other courtrooms, and I'm not going to care what God thinks about me. Um, I, f I wake up, like, either in the day, sometimes first thing in the morning, or somewhere in the day, and I'm like, I'm in this other courtroom. 
I'm caring more about what somebody else thinks about me than what my father says about me. And so I've started thinking about, you know what? This is when I cr cry out and pray to God. And I think about the Spirit as a, a box cutter. The Holy Spirit is a box cutter. So I get trapped in one of these courtrooms, and the Spirit can cut those corners, the flaps fly open, and I wake up into the reality, I'm in this wide open space. I'm in a wide open space where I have that big brother who stands over me, tells me, Tammy, stop judging yourself and others, and um, rest in my love for you. So um, a couple other things I did um, wanna say also about courtrooms that helps me is that for a long time, I always only saw myself as the defendant, like I'm the one on trial here, and I would um, respond in one of two ways depending on the day. Um, the first one was more of a bit like I would quit, like a plea out or um, despairing. And the other one is defending and justifying and declaring my innocence till the day I die kind of a thing. So maybe you find um, yourself in some of those when you're um, on trial. But then recently I've had this whole new gift of God to see my sin more. <laughs> um, and that is, Tammy, you're a judge. And when, when I, this is my... If, I would encourage you to think about when, when you, the judge, when um, Erwin, the judge, shows up, um, what does that look and sound like? Start thinking about this and um, be aware of it. And those are great places to run um, in prayer and repentance. Um, but Tammy as judge sounds like, I know. I'm right. Or how could she? Um, Tammy as the prosecutor, I can accuse and I can build a case. I usually won't say it in front of anybody, but I'll tell Steve. He is, he is so tired of hearing my case building. Um, then Tammy as gallery, this is, this is really new and important um, in my story right now. Tammy as a gallery, it's like sitting in the seat of mockers. Um, it's not speaking up. It's just this great feeling that I'm not on trial. And, um, and I'm realizing this is my new place of repentance. Um, I have been so much in that courtroom of public opinion my whole life, not wanting anybody to not like me that I was um, and afraid of meanness or anything that sounded like mean or harsh, that any kind of justice issue I wanted to run from, put me in the gallery in the back or just I want to get out of court rather than hearing the Father. Um, and so my new prayer is, Father, teach me your justice heart. Help me not just want to be indifferent in the gallery. Change me. So let's move to another um, opportunity, another exercise to think about a beautiful orthodoxy leading to a beautiful orthopraxy. And this goes with a story. And um, August 16th, 1994, I have daughter Emily. She's the one on the right. And she, she was born the alpha female of the house. Think wolf. Think, think a wolf with a, with a cub or some, even another wolf down the ground. She had me <laughs> at birth. She knew she was weaker, that I was weaker than her and that she was stronger. And she's a high D and I'm a high S. And she, she knew it. And as fanciful as that sounds, really, at three months, she held a grudge against me. It was so obvious. I'll tell you the story at dinner if you want to hear about it. But I knew, I knew at that point that my um, easy parenting experience with my firstborn compliant son was about to expire. And, um, and Emily, you know how she loves horses, but you know how horses know when the rider doesn't know anything about horses and they take advantage of you like they make you they stand because they know you're not going to be good enough to get them to go a different direction there's like that horse sense um, my daughter emily even though i never overtly tried to show my disapproval for her um, in the way i talked with her she knew she could sense it she could knew that i had she knew that i had this small ambition for her life my ambition was that she would be nice like her mom that she would know how to be diplomatic and not direct and um, all those other kinds of things, but I wanted to make her like me. And um, I saw little to no beauty in her directness and her strength, her boldness, her fight for justice heart. I was like, that scares me, Cal calm down, we're gonna make waves. Um, and I believe she would make my life easier and hers too if she would just be a little nicer. And um, I missed her in a lot of ways as a mom. And there was always that tainted, a lot of love, but tainted with that um, lack of delight in the beauty of her personality. So I'm, Emily's a young girl. When I was starting Paraclea with Sherry, and Sherry's also a high D, and I would call up Sherry occasionally when Steve was tired of my complaining, and I would, 
tell her all these awful things that Emily would do or say, and she would like, oh, that's amazing. Do you know how few women would, you know, young girls would, would speak like that or stand up for that? And I'm like, you're supposed to be on my side. Stop, <laughs> stop. Um, so it was not, it was, um, there were some hard years. At age 15, this is one of the things she said to me. She goes, Mom, I did the math. At 18, when I turn 18, my August birthday will have me still in my senior year. So if you think you're going to tell me when I can and can't leave the house when I'm 18, you've got another thing coming, and I'm not going to live here. So that's what she told me at 15. But by 18, you can only imagine how many of this, how many bells had to have been rung because at 18, there was this um, uh, uh, sweet healing. That's, all, uh, that's one of the ways I can say it. I would say um, the spirit had been undoing my self-righteous posture. I started seeing her different. She didn't necessarily change, but my lens had changed. I saw her beauty. I saw the beauty of her strength, and I began to delight in her. Um, and I was able to talk with her about the sharp edges without trying to um, shame her or elevate my way of talking to people, if that makes sense. So all this is happening at 18, um, this budding, healthy relationship, and then, then we come to the encounter. Um, she is uh, at this point, she loves me to tell this story, by the way, I have her full permission. She was at that place not really wanting to talk much about God or having a relationship with God, and so I took every, every little thing that she gave me of an interest in spiritual things, I was like, oh, I'm holding on to it. She would, um, too much. But she came downstairs one day, my husband's on the other side of the island in the kitchen, I'm on this side, Emily comes bebopping downstairs, puts down her laptop, and she said, Mom, you've gotta see this. She'd been showing us those um, videos, like, um, me second, and a bunch of spoken word rap poetries. This was a rap poetry about a young woman who was not a mother who said, if I'm a mother one day, this is what I'm gonna be. So she puts down the laptop, and, um, and it started out so cool. It's like, this is really neat. Oh yeah, that's a great thing that moms do, and that's a great thing. About the third or fourth thing um, that this girl said, I was like, I didn't do that. And, and then it was, um, something else positive that I had done, and then next thing you know, I'm like, I didn't do that either. Is she trying to tell me all the ways that I failed her? Is she throwing this in my face? Is she trying to bring all this up? And I'm looking at her, and she's got this huge smile on her face, and yet all of these shame messages and half-truths are just swallowing me. They're sticking to me like more than sticky notes. <laughs> um, but I was in a moment covered with all of this, and then she closes her laptop, and she goes upstairs. It was done. And then I um, forgot kind of that Steve was in the room. And as you know, I can talk fast. And I started talking about 1,000 miles an hour. And it was the voice of venom, accusation. I had a rap sheet on myself that, I, that in a moment was right there. All the ways that I'd hurt her, all the ways that I'd harmed her, neglected her, overlooked her, didn't like her um, personality. All of those things were like flying out of my mouth. And the, the thing, all my fears and all the ways I was going to ruin her and ruin her life was all spewing out of my mouth. And then... My beautiful husband of 31 years did something um, that he's only done one other time. It was in seminary, and every time you're in seminary, you should have at least one good yelling match. But this is what he did. Um, I didn't see him, but he does this. Stop! Do you even see me? And at that point, I looked up, and his face is beat red. He goes, Tammy, I don't know whether to scream or to cry. He said, Phantom Tammy is a bitch, and she may not talk to you that way. Whatever you're hearing in here is not what just happened here. And that's when I realized he's not screaming at me. He's fighting for me. He's saying, what you are experiencing and what you're hearing is not truth, and we're going to deal with that because that is not okay. And so um, he calmed down. I'm looking at him now, and he's a pastor, and he went into a sermon. And... Uh, <laughs> um, that year was the year, we love football in our family, and that year was the year the two Harbaugh brothers played each other in the Super Bowl. I'm saying 49ers, is that right? Um, against the Ravens. And the losing brother at that press conference was asked by a reporter, Jim, what would you have done differently to win this game? And his response was, what it could have, should have, is undefeated. If you think I know how I could have won this game, that you would be interviewing me, or would you be interviewing my brother? So Steve looks at me and says, Tammy, what it could have, should have, is undefeated. You just can't stand the fact that you're not undefeated as a parent, that you didn't have a perfect parenting record to offer. And um, it was, yes, is that a clap? No. <laughs> it, was, it was actually really helpful. I really felt like he was um, not just inviting me to be repentance, but 
it was really sweet. Another thing that he said was, um, Tammy, you desperately want something that you can never have, but it's something that you don't even need. Great parenting can't save you. It doesn't justify you, and it can't save our kids, and it doesn't give you any firm place to stand. You have that. You have that, Tammy. And um, how do you say it? Um, you have that perfect record. You just really can't stand the fact that it didn't come from you. I was like, oh, that was a beautiful invitation to repentance, even though it hurt <laughs> at the time. So because in Pericleia, we're always trying to, so how do I remember this? How do I take this and, and put it into my repertoire of my head that I can grab hold of something in the moment? And so in Pericleia, we um, did this exercise about the stickiness of shame. And so I'm going to show you. I didn't do this that day, but I came back to it later to ex express. These weren't just vague shame messages. These were my messages. Tammy, you are a horrible mother. The next one was, um, Tammy, you never stood up for her. And lastly, Tammy, you, you will be the reason that she'll run far from God. This is on you. So um, what's really common when you feel some kind of shame, whether it's legitimate um, shame, that's sin, which is a good gift from God, that guilt that leads us to repentance, um, whether it's legitimate shame um, or if it's illegitimate shame. Illegitimate shame is a way to think of it. It's not that I did something wrong to repent of, but I am wrong. So um, what's really common that we do, um, how we respond to that is kind of a garden variety common response, and that's think Genesis, think sin, shame, hiding. Um, so we call it fig leafing. So this is how I tend to cover these things off because this feels so uncomfortable to be with um, and to think about that it's really, really, my heart needs some kind of soothing and comforting. So you were a horrible mom, well, well, nobody's perfect. And fig leaves always have a little bit of a, an ability to cover. And there's some truth usually bound up in it. The really good fig leaves have nothing to do with God, but have a lot of truth bound up into them to make you feel like you're okay. The next, ooh, sorry. The next, whoop, the next one is, you never stood up for her. And this one was, well, it was only once or twice. Because that was true, there's only a couple times I really remember, like, I think, Phantom team, it was exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. So the another one is, you're the reason she'll far, far, run far from God. Well, that's on her now. She's an adult. And, you know, she's been making decisions since she came out of the womb. <laughs> so that's on her. So this is an um, example of fig leafing. And um, the best thing I can say about a fig leaf is one stiff wind, one stiff wind, and they're gone. That's because um, these come off quickly. These shame messages come like this. New ones, they embed and they bore in in a moment, and you, you're going to have to fight them the rest of your life. And the old ones, they come back like those, those buoys from Jaws, you know, all of a sudden, like, boom, they're back up. Um, those old um, shame messages, they're there. And so, um, let's see, probably. Um, so, I guess there's... Um, this is the time where I, I tend to not wake up to my need of Jesus until I'm feeling swallowed by a lot of this stuff, and, or until those fig leaves that I've tried or the other people have told me um, haven't comforted. They're just not, they're not doing it. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's a hope, there's a person, I'm gonna run to him, and, um, and he's gonna have something so much more substantial for me. There's a truth and a beauty to who he is and who he says I am that I need to run and find out what would he say. And so, um, so the last one, here's what I'll tell you, um, uh, putting on truth to these kinds of sticky um, shame messages. Um, so the one that said, you're a horrible mother, here's what I tell my heart. Tammy, Christ is sufficient for all your insufficiencies. You are forgiven and not defined by your parenting record. One day I wrote insufficiencies here and I spelled it wrong. I spelled it sin sufficiencies. And I was like, yep, he's, he's sufficient for all my sin sufficiencies as well. But think about, it's not just take, truth isn't just the invitation to hold on to what has already been done for us. It is, a, it is an invitation to repent. And so that whole, um, you are a horrible mom, um, part of the repentance that I've been doing for that is, Father, forgive me for wanting to build my own record, for wanting a record that is um, apart from you. So you are a hor or you never stood up for her. In this case, if, that, if I had never repented, the invitation is to repentance. But I had, over those years, repented to her, not just of those times that I remembered, but of that trait, of that being that mom who always cared about public opinion and not her. Um, and so um, my, my words of truth to my heart were, Father, I have repented. 
um, to you and to her about this trait. Help me fight the false condemnation um, that, um, that I'm feeling, this urge to do penance. Help me to believe the forgiveness that you've granted. Um, and those are some truths for that. They're all falling, so I'm going to just put them down. And lastly, you're the reason she'll run far from God. Um, this one is one of my favorite truths. It's kind of a, um, it's some paraphrase from one of the catechisms or something, but it's something that comforts my heart so much more than um, a fig leaf, and that is, Tammy, God can work above, beyond, despite, through, and even without your parenting. And I say in my prayer, Father, you can't be thwarted by me or by her. Help me to hold on to that. And forgive me. I, I need to repent. I need to repent. Not just, I think, remember I said earlier, shame is a sense of defectiveness as a human. That's a kind of like a way to think about shame. Um, but I, I think I've been realizing I have a sense of defectiveness as a little God. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I feel like I'm always wanting to be him and to be in control and um, wanting his job of saving. And, um, and so I've been starting to repent of that, um, trying to be God. So um, the truth and beauty is a spiritual goobagon. <laughs> it's, um, it's going to um, actually, um, it has the power because it's rooted in the person and work of Christ, in the story of redemption that God is telling through the power of the Spirit to, to, to intercept the sin um, and shame and lies and truth, um, those messages that we're, that we're fighting. So I'm thinking our time is getting close. I'm going to wrap it up. Okay, what's next on the slide? Um, one more? Okay, so one of the things that I remember hearing um, in a um, sermon on, by spiritual war, called Spiritual Warfare by Keller one time was that um, he said he loved the version of the translation that says that we wrestle not only with flesh and blood. And um, he said, this is what stuck with me, he said, you wrestle not only with flesh and blood because you're not smart enough to have a shootout with evil. You don't see evil coming and then know, like, I have enough time to go to my room, get any weapons that I have that I can fight um, get my box cutter. I should get my box cutter. Um, <laughs> you don't have enough time for that. He said, you wake up to evil when its hands are around your neck. Um, that day, everything was fine. I'm in the kitchen with my husband, and next thing you know, the laptop is open, and I am down like the giraffe, and evil is around my neck, and it's a fight. What am I going to believe? What, am I gonna, what is true here? Um, and so one of the things in Pericolea we're always talking about, how can we... Um, arm ourselves with weapons of truth and beauty. In this day and age, it's not really cool to talk about weapons. We're still going to call it building a personal arsenal of truth and beauty. Our, our Australian friends, we say, we take a backpack of personal beauty things through, it, through the wilderness with us, but I need some weapons. And um, in this personal arsenal, it can be all different kinds of things, but like I said in a, mo a few minutes ago, is there are things that zoom you out, that give you a, a big picture perspective of whose story we're in and who the hero is of the story. And, um, and it also has you, um, your eyes lifted to the cross to see the person and work of Christ and what he's done. And so any of these things can be the things attached that have probably had some meaning in your life um, that the Spirit has used to kind of wake you up, to lift your eyes, um, to see from where your help comes from. And so it can look like a lot of different things. And what I'm going to do is encourage you to start building your own personal arsenal. You probably already have one, even if you've never called it that. Um, and would you, I don't know, um, would you read the next slide? No, the one about the message, the message version. Yes. So take everything the master has set for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. So I'm going to tell you um, how one of my um, favorite personal arsenals, the ways I fight for my heart to believe the things of God that are true, um, came to me. Um, when I was watching the movie Slumdog Millionaire. And in my childhood story, I, it was a story of a lot of hard. And um, to kind of make my life work, I, it was easier just not to feel, not to feel angry, not to feel pain. Um, and just then not to feel, there was a real stoic reality to my life where I hardly ever cried. So if a movie made me cry, that was a big deal. And I'd kind of like pay attention. What was that? So I'm watching Slumdog Millionaire. And if you know the story, she um, and Jamal, this other young guy, grew up as slums in, I think, Mumbai. But they, they, there was a lot of places throughout that movie that I could have cried, never cried, never cried. Somewhere toward the very end, when it's this picture, um, which has been flashing throughout the whole movie, and you finally see 
What is she looking at? Who she, she's looking at? And you find out it's Jamal who has invited her to come out of her life of slavery. Um, to, he's told her of his love for her and how he's always loved her and that, um, that he wants her to come to the train station to be rescued and to come and live with him and live in his love. And I just burst into tears and I had no idea why. So a couple days later, I'm at church and one of our, uh, our associate pastor, Jonathan Robson, this was quite a few years ago, he said to me, Tammy, did you watch it? And I said, yes. And I even cried. I can't believe it. He goes, well, did you notice that she was wearing yellow almost the entire movie line? Like it started out real pale and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter, except this one time when she's caught in the sexual slave trade that she's wearing green. But he said, you know how that tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, that color of hope that we have? He goes, he goes I thought about it. It's like that's her wearing hope. There's some hope that's being born like throughout the movie line. And at the end, they're even waving these scarves. And as soon as he said that, I said, I know what I got to do. So I ran to Joanne Fabrics, a place I don't really go unless I have to. <laughs> My husband has trauma from his mom going to Joanne Fabrics, so he doesn't like to come with me. But I went and I bought this piece of fabric that looks a little bit like the color what she was wearing because I knew it. I knew why I was crying because my whole life, I've never hardly ever looked up for rescue. I put my head down and I work hard to make a rescue. You give me a whiteboard, I could probably solve the whole world, I arrogantly think. But I, I, I work and I don't cry out to God and I don't ask him, I don't pray, I don't say, um, would you be my rescuer? You are the rescue, I know you're the rescuer, you're the hero. I'm trying to be the shero of my own story and my church's story and Paracoleo's story. This is me. I am this person that does not um, think that you will rescue. And I want to be her. I want to look up um, for rescue. So I want to wear yellow. Um, and so it became a metaphor. And I ran out and put this across my desk. And it's been a metaphor for me ever since. What would it look like to wear yellow? To look up for my rescuer to come. Um, behold. Behold. He'll come. So I do want to invite you to create and build your own personal arsenal, the weapons that your heart needs to hear. They're gonna be connected to your own story. Um, share them with others. Let, let the people around you know some of your arsenal. What, what has that power, like a chemotherapy, to, to break up the cancerous lack of those lies and shame messages? Tell other people what you have um, so they can speak that to you and invite you to, to hold fast to that, um, who you are, whose you are.